Welcome to the latest IFG Live. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, and a very warm welcome to Shami Chakrabarti, who is going to be doing this event live on our stage at our headquarters, but that was before the world changed. She is, of course, a Labour member of the House of Lords and Shadow Attorney General since 2016 when she joined Jeremy Corbyn's top team. And before that, and absolutely relevant to what we're going to be talking about this afternoon, she was Director of Liberty, which campaigns for civil liberties and human rights. And she was that from 2003 to 2016, the period following 9-11 when anti-terrorism measures and civil liberties were very much the stuff of passionate debate, as they are still today. We're here to discuss the coronavirus bill, which is now going through Parliament and aims to give the government extensive emergency powers to tackle the crisis. It's got 329 pages, 87 clauses and 90 amendments were tabled in the Commons. Shami, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This isn't like other recent legislation, is it, in what it really does to the scope of government? There's no getting over the fact that it's an extraordinary piece of legislation for quite an extraordinary moment. And Bronwyn, I would never have imagined in my in my lifetime, not least with the with with the background that you've just um, discussed, that I would, in the main, have to be advocating measures such as these. Um, this this bill. Um, soon to be an act, I have no doubt, contains the most extraordinarily um, extraordinarily sweeping powers on the executive, both at a Westminster devolved and to some extent local level, to, on the one hand, intrude into our normal liberties, um, liberties that have been hard won and that the people enjoy unthinkingly in the, in the UK. It also deregulates a lot of very important safeguards for vulnerable people. But nonetheless, it's very, very hard, given the the extreme nature of this global pandemic and what we've seen it doing elsewhere in, in the world and on the continent, with us just, you know, a little bit behind that curve. It's very difficult to say that these powers aren't, aren't necessary. And so we have to focus on the safeguards in the bill as long as, as well as the, the huge concerns in it. Well, I want to come on to some of those in detail as, as well. I mean, the Prime Minister himself said, look, no, the Prime Minister wants to, wants to be doing this. But would you say broadly that there is cross-party support for the urgency and the principles of the legislation? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is that um, I am grateful to Matt Hancock, uh, the Health Secretary and Michael Ellis, the Shadow Solicitor General in particular, for discussing these measures um, with with me and with John Ashworth, the Shadow Health Secretary, a couple of weeks ago when they were in sort of rapid, rapid development. And, and that was done in a, in, in a fairly open-hearted, open-handed way. And um, we haven't obviously as an opposition, got the resources that the government has to uh, to draft our own legislation or to or to crawl over every dot and comma in the space of a few days in the way that government can. But there has been a genuine attempt, I think, to um, to work in a bipartisan way. Yes, and what, what I was asking you was, was whether there was support for the, the urgency and the, and the principles of this, rather than, for example, someone saying um, oh, there's no need for new legislation, uh, the government could rely on existing powers, such as the Civil Contingencies Act. No, 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 no. We were convinced that new, 
that new legislation was needed on the subject of the Civil Contingencies Act, because I have heard some people, um, some some commentators raise that point perfectly understandably. I, I for one, uh, and back in the day I had huge concerns about the Civil Contingencies Act. Um, I, I do think that for this crisis, um, and actually in general, purpose-specific legislation uh, debated even in a truncated form on the on the floor of the House of Commons is preferable to a civil contingencies act with Henry VIII's powers to, mm. to basically rule by regulation. Um, not actually as much scrutiny there with the civil contingencies act, and um, and, and the regulations are in danger of being less purpose specific. It's it's also better, I think, that um, that citizens and journalists and everybody else in the world is able to look at what will be a coronavirus act, see all the powers as far as possible in one place, and scrutinise them. Uh, that's a, that's a, yeah, that's a very good point, that they're all in one place. They can all be looked at, scrutinised together. And uh, we're going to come on to the, the, the timing question, the timing yeah. uh, in, in, in a second. But I just wanted to ask you, um, this should be signed into law on Thursday, unless uh, there's any um, hesitation about that in the, in the Lords, where the, where the bill is, is now heading. Uh, you're in the Lords. Do, do you see any problems with that? I think that, um, you know, her Majesty's opposition um, is broadly in support of mm. this legislation, obviously with a very heavy heart mm. and obviously with certain particular concerns that we are raising, um, some of which the, the government has already met and some which will have to very much be returned to in the days and months ahead. Well, let's go, let's go on to some of these concerns that, that many, many people, including the opposition, had, and, and, and indeed many Conservative MPs as well. And, and some of these begin with the, the length of time in which the powers have been in operation and then the chance for parliamentary scrutiny. And the government has, has made a concession on, on that and said MPs are going to have a chance to review the, um, the legislation every six months. Does that go far enough, in your view? It's been very important that I say to you and your listeners that despite everything we have heard about the irritations of the Human Rights Act on the one hand or judicial review on the other hand, it's a very important concession from this Conservative Party and leadership that, um, that the Human Rights Act applies to every measure in this legislation. It comes under cover of a Section 19 statement under the Human Rights Act saying that government believes that the bill complies. Uh, there is not a single attempted ouster or exclusion mm. of judicial review in this emergency legislation. And that means that every single decision by the government, be it the national government or devolved governments, to turn on or off a measure in this legislation and every single action, every single administrative action under that power, all of those decisions will be subject to judicial review and against human rights standards. That's a major concession when you think that just a few months ago, we, you know, we had number 10 talking about judicial activism and, 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 um, and attacking human rights principles. We did, we, we did have, and that may yet come back. But when you say a concession, was this something that they changed uh, from their first thinking or from the first version of the bill? All I would say is that when we first um, met with them, there was no first version of the bill, or certainly not one that was available to us. And so it was something that we, we asked before first and foremost, and, 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 that, um, and, and that was agree agreed. I, I felt 
rather positively and enthusiastically by the Shadow Solicitor General in particular, and I'd like to to thank him for that. So that's, well, you, you, have, you have already. <laughs> um, so that's well. I'm, you know, I'm, before I come in with all my yeah. concerns and criticisms, it's a, it's good to do the to do yeah. the positive part. I'm not I'm not against that uh, at all. I, I just I just wanted just though stay on this point about the before we go on to some of the detailed concerns about how this affects uh, people in their ordinary lives. Um, the government's offered this six monthly review. Is that going to be enough? Um, it's it's better than we had before, which was uh, the you know the legislation expired after two years, which is a very long time in normal days and an exceptionally long time yeah. in, in in the world yeah. we're living in now. Um, previously, the government had only offered a, a sort of anniversary report after one year, but but no real parliamentary uh, involvement, uh, say for the two years. So this is an, a, a really significant improvement. And some um, members of the House of Commons understandably raised concerns that they wouldn't be able to amend the legislation at the six. Well, I was, I was going to ask you that, um, whether they should be able to amend the bill when they uh, vote well, on the House, you know, not, not just an up and down yes, no vote. I think that that would always have been preferable. Um, however, that was not offered. What I will say, though, is that uh, because of the nature of the particular provisions that will be turned off and on. I think that if if Parliament um, expresses particular concern about the way individual measures have been operated in practice, um, there will be there ought to be significant opportunity to pressure ministers to to change regulations made under uh, under the bill or to change well, the exercise of them. One practical point, supposing Parliament isn't sitting at the time when the six months rolls round, should the bill explicitly require Parliament to be recalled, if that's the case, so that this vote isn't missed? That is particularly interesting in the light of the coronavirus crisis. And if you if you heard any of the proceedings in the House of Commons yesterday you will have heard members really argue for 21st century parliament. Given the dangers of this crisis, given that it is spread by close proximity with other human beings, given that parliament wants to set, to set an example to, to other workers at this point, there have been parliamentarians calling for the ability to, uh, to recall parliament um, by... By digital means. This is very interesting. This is something I, um, uh, we've been writing about at the IFG and I, I've um, written about elsewhere of whether it was in the context of, of Parliament having to decamp because of all the refurbishment, but whether this would bring on the age of digital voting, which would allow all kinds of flexibility MPs to spend longer in their constituencies and uh, and so on. And it, it may be that this, this uh, prompts uh, people to think that that way certainly accelerating that thinking and that discussion you can see it already because of course you know mps lives are at stake um and and those of their family and and, and constituents if they if they are to be super spreaders going back and forth between be, between london which is currently sadly the epicenter of this in the on the pack trains yes yeah. <laughs> yes and um the government's going to publish, it says, uh, eight, eight weekly reports on its uh, use of the bill. What should be in these? Uh, they should uh, set out which bits of the bill have been turned on right. and, and in which 
parts of um, of these islands, because you'll appreciate that, that they can be turned off and on in different areas. What kind of regulations or directions have been made under bits of the bill that have been turned off and on in each of these areas? They should publish an equality impact assessment. Uh, you know, the coronavirus feeds off inequalities, inequalities in health and wealth and provision. So we desperately need them to publish quality impact statements as to how how the operation of the bill ha- has operated in relation to men, women, old people, young people, um, different demographics around the country. We really need as much transparency and clarity as possible, not just in relation to the exercise of emergency powers, but in relation to this virus and the fight against it. Because as my colleague John Ashworth said, it feeds off ambiguity and uncertainty and, 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 so, and public health weaknesses um, feed off that too. I want to come on to some of the points that have really concerned people. If you look at um, what people are saying on Twitter and, and on um, radio stations and so on. Uh, for example, things uh, like uh, allowing health authorities to discharge people without checking that they've got uh, social care in place uh, to receive them or removing the obligation on local authorities uh, to uh, always offer social social care and assess needs. Um, how big a concern do you think this is? This is one of the one of the biggest concerns in the legislation. It seriously, seriously dilutes the protections for um, for vulnerable people who need who, who need social care in a social care system that is already um, seriously uh, diluted and degraded in recent years. So it weakens rights that people had to social care. Um, and really makes those rights really just the the bare minimum in the Human Rights Act. And so that is of enormous concern that people might be be, uh, refused social care because there aren't enough um, care workers or because capacity, whether it's residential or care capacity, caring capacity has been diverted to... um, to, to, to dealing with um, other victims of coronavirus, it's a it, it, it's very very concerning, very very concerning indeed. And it will be one areas that I think that, uh, that that Labour members in particular will be will will be watching very closely in its operation around the country. What about an area that I mean sometimes gets less attention and scrutiny, but matters enormously to people affected by it, and that's that's the protections under mental health legislation yeah. and at the moment you need um two doctors to sign off um a detention under that and, and this I, I believe changes it to requiring only one this is obviously in the name of reducing the pressure on the uh, on the health services but um a, a, again what you know is it possible to offer people reassurance about um how that's going to apply or uh, well, at, well, at least this being under review well Bronwyn I mean you don't need much of an imagination to know how powers to detain the mentally ill can and have been abused in human history, whether by accident or design. So it is a pretty, it is a pretty chilling power, and you're right to raise it. And it yeah, is we, 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 we have an instance in our family. Um, it's very much on my mind, and um, um, yeah, and, and yet is one so of on those that's quite, o- quite often under the radar. 
But this is the Chakrabarti dilemma. I hate it when people talk about themselves in the third person. But you, the, the, I wasn't this, encouraging you to. No, no, no. I was doing it myself. But look, this is this has been my dilemma that there is a power that I would never contemplate having to agree to, and to even you know reluctantly support that you could be sectioned under the mental health act with one doctor and not two. And yet, when we're looking at the scenes that we're looking at in Italy and elsewhere around the world where where health professionals are going to, are being completely overwhelmed and of course you know the NHS was not in its most resilient state before this crisis it's very hard for me to say that that the load shouldn't be shared between doctors but i mean i hope i hope that this power won't have to be turned on but again if it if it is exercised anywhere in the country it will um it will be an area where i hope that journalists and 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 citizens and everyone will be will be monitoring its use very closely but we've already discussed how parliament isn't going to be able to amend this uh when it when it comes back for review it's not going to be able to pick and choose and say it, it might raise all kinds of questions but it's going to have to vote yes or no up and down uh, on this was there much debate i i, I absolutely understand the, the the desire to you know uh, support um the, all efforts and and the national health service in particular in this emergency but was there much uh debate in in the commons uh and in in shadow cabinet about whether to pick um to pick off some of the bits and say look we're, we'll back all of this except for this bit it's it's, it's it's look there is there is a political reality of um of parliamentary arithmetic but there's also a practical reality of this crisis and each of the measures that you're you're mentioning to me are you know i have had to support in some form with a very very heavy heart and that is the prop that is the nature of a virus that attacks not the financial system as with the last um international you know crisis it, it it attacks the respiratory system it is um and it is the nhs um an nhs that has been suffering from austerity over many years that now has to cope um i would also just say about this legislation you pick, you've picked on quite rightly some some measures that are very chilling to people's rights uh, another one would be the right to ban gatherings um you know again we would never normally support that but this is a person to person virus mm. people haven't been taking social distancing seriously enough perhaps partly because the messaging hasn't been as clear as i would like um but the other problem with this legislation from my point of view is that it is asymmetric in that it is ask it is it is asking people to accept enormous sacrifices in relation to their normal um their normal quality of life and their rights and freedoms but it doesn't contain within the legislation um all the economic guarantees that they need to see them through this crisis and that, that that is something that that troubles that that troubles me too and so we'll have to keep pursuing as we are the socio and economic rights that people need just to see them through quarantine just to see them through this um whatever you want to call it period of a, a very challenging social distancing or lockdown or whatever language businesses closed schools closed um, and of course as we're hearing the self employed really not not able to get any exactly. income at all and you know in the end it's not just about fairness and it's not just about justice and human rights it's about public health it's about adequately fighting um 
this virus because you cannot ask people to quarantine without giving them the basic means of existence and survival yeah. whilst they are locked in that state. Well, that, that is something, uh, maybe uh, parts of this bill touch on that um, and in terms of sick pay and, and, and so on. Um, but obviously that's something that the, the government and the Chancellor uh, are issuing a set of statements on. What, what seems clear, though, is that we're going to come out of this with uh, a very large increase uh, in the role of the state, uh, not just the National Health Service, though I think its place in national life will be uh, even more uh, confirmed and, and cherished for that, but also the government taking over uh, the railways, perhaps parts of airlines and so on. Do you have a feeling in the great battle of ideas, whether this is good for ideas of right or left? I mean, do, do you sit there within uh, the Labour Party, uh, part of Jeremy Corbyn's team and put together this very radical manifesto and here's the government doing an enormous number of big state things with a giant amount of money behind it have they taken that space in the political firmament oh well i think that uh, it's not about taking space it's about um it's about doing the right thing and yes i do think that this vicious deadly disease is proving certain things that some of us have believed for a long time. And that is essentially that no one is an island and we are only as strong as our weakest and most vulnerable person. And that is just made particularly clear in the context of coronavirus, because you can't, you know, you can't hide from it in your penthouse if you ever want to leave your penthouse or you want anybody to come into it. And um, and that is that is the message, really, that you cannot you cannot get through this as a United Kingdom if you do not care for the most vulnerable who have been ignored and on the margins for so long. And, and also with that enormous investment in social infrastructure you know, like the NHS. Many people are doing things differently from what they would have expected even a few weeks ago. Is it conceivable in all this that Labour might have accelerated its leadership race? I have to think, I think it's a slightly bizarre Westminster question to think that we should be thinking about leadership races. It may be about leadership races, but if you think Labour, Labour's been without its next leader uh, for, um, uh, for, for the budget, and now in the middle of this uh, crisis, um, when these very, very important things are, be, are, being, are being debated, it's, it's still without its next next leader. It's, it's, I, I think we've had, um, my experience of it is that we've had greater party unity um, in our response to this crisis than I've seen, certainly in my, um, in my time observing um, the, the party from the outside and from within it. We, we, we've seen a very united response because Labour people know that you win the battle against coronavirus um, in the NHS and by people coming together, taking care of the vulnerable um, and, and investing in community uh, rather than in selfishness. And I, I, I've seen the party at its best, I think, in the last few weeks. So this, it, it came to a head, it, it came to a, a spike in the middle of, of the contest, um, but, but, but colleagues have been working incredibly well together and um, you know, in, in particular, um, Jonathan Ashworth and John McDonnell taking care of the health and economic briefs, but um, 
but 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 Jeremy Corbyn too, and and really colleagues from across the shadow cabinet, Angela Rayner, you know, speaking up for teachers and school kids and parents. I I, I don't think that this is really about the the, leader, the Labour leadership race. No. Well, one of the things I uh, one of the reasons I uh, asked you that, uh, and this may seem um, to dive uh, into the world of Twitter rather than, rather than Westminster, but there's a certain amount of chat about a, a, a government of national unity and whether that would make sense given the incursions on on personal freedoms and so on that's going on. We had a Conservative MP, George Freeman, uh, tweeting about it today, and you can see others on right and left uh, chatting uh, uh, this over. Is, is that something that's part of Labour's thinking at all? I, I, I certainly haven't had time, uh, to be honest, to be to be thinking about sort of fantasy football. And but, I, but I'm not on Twitter. Um, yeah. But but what I will say is, if you if if you want to make it a slightly more serious question, I think that um, well, it was a serious question. But anyway, go on. If you want to make it a more serious answer, I, I, I just I, I just it just feels very it just feels very political Westminster. What what I would say is that. Um, such coalition governments in the face of crises um, have both advantages and disadvantages. Um, and um, I can imagine, for example, that when you're in a, um, you know, when you're in World War Two and you're fighting um, an enemy over there that is a military enemy and a national enemy, um, there's a certain amount of, of, of secrecy um, in, involved and you want to, you know, you, you want your politicians to club together and 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 work in a certain way hug them close hug your potential opponents close but i think that one of the things that i felt most about coronavirus is that you really need to fight it with transparency mm. and some of the powers that we are going to see on the statute book are actually more sweeping even than those you saw in wartime and transparency is going to be more important than than secrecy you don't really want very much secrecy and so it's not a bad idea to have um to have a loyal opposition uh, a responsible opposition but an opposition uh, nonetheless that is prepared to um to in the right tone and the right tenor hold the government to account Oh, well, thanks very much indeed for that answer. I should say I don't think it's on the government's radar uh, either, but in the immense amount of, of of talk about how people want to be governed in this, it, it is out there as an idea. Let's but wrap even up. Without that, yeah, yeah, sorry, right. Even without that, even without you know coalitions and, mm. um, I do think that it's possible to at least conduct politics in a slightly more temperate and constructive way than perhaps we. We've always that we've seen in recent years. Um, so maybe you know, maybe something good will come of this horrible, horrible time. Me um, just wrap up. There a couple of questions come in uh, from uh, Twitter for you. One back on uh, from Elfrida Martin. Back on the question of um, uh, patient safeguards um, under this new legislation, and she's saying if the emergency powers remove patient safeguards of a treatment plan while in hospital and a continuing care plan on being discharged, how can the right to timely and appropriate health care be honoured? And also, can a do not resuscitate uh, um, order be imposed without consent in this emergency? Goodness me, I, I, I certainly hope not. I cer certainly hope we do not get to um, those kinds of decisions. But, 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 but let's be clear, the pictures that we've seen from, from other countries, and I might add that people have had concerns about parts of the legislation to do 
with burials and uh, and cremations and so on we are we are looking at field hospitals we are looking at um potentially um, huge, huge numbers of fatalities and near fatalities. Um, this is a particular strain on the NHS and we need to see those ventilators. We need to see more protective kits. And yes, no doubt, there are some really, really concerning compre compromises that have been envisaged by government to, um, to the rights and the, and the treatment of some of our most vulnerable people. I've got another one from Leonie Cooper, who's a London Assembly member, saying, this is a very London question, many people are saying, why on earth are construction workers still going to work? And a special problem in London on, on the tube. Um, That's a very good they... question. It shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen. Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London, has said that yesterday. Rebecca Long-Bailey, our Business Secretary, yeah. has said that shouldn't happen. I, mean, I think what's going on here is that government is playing catch-up. You know, I think we called... We called for an escalation in government policy yesterday morning after a weekend when it was absolutely clear that um, the message was not getting, somehow the government's message was not cutting through. And by the way, we do think that the, the you know, regardless of legislation, government communications could and must be more effective. But, but um, there have been some unscrupulous employers not just in construction, but in parts of um, non-vital retail that, that have been demanding that their, uh, that their employees go to work. And government has to be more proactive, more interventionist in, um, in, in telling those businesses that that is unacceptable and there will be sanctions if they continue to do that. And there should be more of a quid pro quo between supporting business and expecting uh, business to protect its workers' health and jobs. Yeah, but but obviously some of these people may be self-employed, and that's one of the big unsolved questions. Indeed, and so, so the self-employed must be supported um, in a way that they've yet to be supported, um, um, so that they can stay at home. Because you and I, understandably, because of my role, um, have been talking a lot about powers and sanctions and civil liberties. But the bottom line is you can have all the emergency legislation and draconian power you like. If you don't give people the economic incentive and support to stay at home, uh, they will find, you know, they will leave and they will go and work when they're sick. They will go onto public transport when they shouldn't be there. And they will, you know, they, they will find ways to get around your injunction. Mm. So, you know, there has to be a symmetry in this policy. Yes, we are all going to be required to make enormous sacrifices and we want equivalent support from the government at this time. Well, as we'll come back to the question of self-employment and how they can be supported, which is an absolutely crucial and, and uh, uh, um, important, uh, not only economic, but humane question, um, as you've been saying, but it's a very complicated one as well. I think with that, we have um, run out of, of time and we uh, are not as strict about time and don't have to be as, as we do on the IFG stage. Uh, time is, is still passing. Um, Shami, thank you very much for discussing. Uh, you... you um, and everyone knows through history, governments have been very quick to take on such powers and not always as quick to, to give them back. And while uh, I absolutely note what you've said about the, um, 
the common spirit of, of how to handle this, this emergency, um, we will keep coming back to this question of parliamentary I'm scrutiny. I'm glad you will. Thank you very much, Bronwyn. Thanks for joining us.